0: A few of you wrote uh, questions on notes, so I'll read a couple of them and then kind of just questions uh, as they come up this evening. The first one uh wrote, sometime in part one you described your, in quote, unhappy camper experience meditating in Nepal. You talked to your teacher and he said, be more mindful. Could you describe your be more mindful experience? So just for those of you who uh, just came for part two, I was describing uh, one time practicing in Nepal with Saira Upandita, and the conditions were really, really bad. Uh, There were about five of us sleeping on a cement floor, uh, it was right next to the latrine. It was very noisy, bad smells, and my mind was <coughs> quite grumpy. And so I was went into Sadao and was describing my mindset to him, and all the terrible conditions. And all he said was, "Be more mindful." And the first thought in my mind was. Thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, so I left the interview, but, you know, here's this great meditation master, he said, be more mindful. So I said, well, why not try it? You know, and I was doing walking meditation and I just started paying very careful attention to feeling the sensations of the movement. And it was quite amazing. First it revealed that much of the time prior to that, I was in this state of what I call more or less mindful. Are you familiar with that? You know, you're moving about either just in general activities or doing the actual walking meditation, and we're kind of there. We're not totally lost, but we're not really there. We're not really present. So inside us would be more mindful, I recognized that, that I had just been in this more or less mindful state. And in that state, there's a lot of room for the mind to get lost in all these proliferating thoughts. And in this case was all these kind of grumpy thoughts. When I became more mindful and just dropped into my body and felt the sensations of the step very carefully, it was amazing. Just the simplicity of doing that, It collected the mind, it's as if there were no room for that uh, papancha in the mind. And the mind actually got quite calm and and the conditions, you know, the physical conditions became very unimportant. So I'd like to emphasize this point (coughs) because it's really uh, the way of developing a skillful meditative habit you know habits are very easy to form in anything in any activity of life and certainly in meditation we can get into a kind of uh, might call it a rut or a habit of practicing with a certain level of attentiveness and if that level of attentiveness is just casual you know where we're more or less there but not really embodied not fully embodied. So then the practice goes along, but it doesn't really uh, uh, deepen, you know, and get to a place where we are (coughs) completely with what's happening. Now the trick in this, the balance, and the understanding is to see and to learn that we can be completely relaxed and yet not casual. And so really to understand the difference between that. Because this be more mindful does not imply struggle and tightening and tensing and forcing, yeah, I'm going to be more mindful and I'm not going to miss a thing and, and we tie ourselves in knots. It's not that at all. It's being totally relaxed, settled back into the body, and simply feeling each movement as carefully and as closely as possible, but in a relaxed way and very receptive way. So a couple of uh, suggestions uh, of how to practice this, of how to establish this kind of mindfulness, this kind of attentiveness as the new habit. One little mantra that I like a lot, especially in moving about and in walking meditation, the mantra is, each step, each step. Can I be mindful? Can I be aware? Can I be relaxed? Can I be embodied in each step? Not hard. You know, when we're doing it one step at a time, is there anyone here who cannot be mindful of one step? I think think you've all mastered that. (coughs) Just one step. If you can do one step, you can do each step because it's just one step at a time. And you can do it at different speeds. Sometimes it may be a little faster speed, sometimes very slow. So remind yourself, okay, each step. Now what pulls us out from the simplicity of being with each step? And this is the second little hint. It's very helpful if you set the intention, you know, in the beginning of the day, to be alert for the feeling of rushing. Because what does rushing mean? We're all familiar with that feeling. It's, it's a common feeling both here on retreat and in our lives. So what does rushing mean? What's, what's the essence of that <coughs> state and that feeling? What's happening when we're rushing, when we have that feeling, is that the mind is a bit ahead of itself. Instead of being settled back in the body, it's as if energetically we're, we're toppling forward a little bit. We're and even in the very slow walking, you could be lifting and leaning into the moving forward already. You know, it's that slight sense of rush. Or you might be in your yogi job, you know, and you have this sense, oh, there's a lot to do, and you, f- you start rushing to get it done. Take that feeling as a feedback that you are no longer relaxed back into the feeling of the body. You're ahead of yourself and it's tension producing. You know, it's not, a, it's not an easeful feeling. And as soon as you're aware that you're rushing, stop for a moment, settle back, and then begin again with whatever you're doing at whatever speed is necessary because you can move quickly and not rush. Munindraji, my first teacher, was such a good example of this. He was a very speedy guy. You, You know, he wasn't kind of this image of the slow, dignified guru type. He moved very quickly in almost everything he did, but I never saw him rush. He was so back in himself. So we can practice this relaxed, embodiment at any speed and it's also helpful and interesting to notice how you can be rushing, moving really slowly. I notice this a lot when I would be doing the walking meditation really slowly and then the lunch bell rings. Lifting, moving, placing, so I'd be moving just as slowly, but shh, I could just feel the pull, you know, of the lunch table. So this is what it means to be more mindful, right? It's not forcing, it's not tightening, it's not tensing. It's actually learning to relax back into the moment fully, each step. And if you practice in that way. And just all the, all the wholesome factors of mind get very strong through that continuity. Okay. <coughs> Can you talk about how love and emptiness play out in practice? The thinking mind sees a paradox, gets tangled, but experientially they seem to support each other, be the same thing in a way. <coughs> This is a really interesting question. Years ago, I was at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky where Thomas Merton had lived. And there were a group of 25 Buddhists and 25 Christian monastics. And this conference happened over, there were two years of it. And out of that conference, uh, there came the idea for a small group of Buddhists to comment on the rule of Saint Benedict, which is the rule for the Trappist order. And so a few of us got together um, and we were both discussing and dialoguing and creating the Buddhist commentary on the rule of Saint Benedict and it was published as a book called Benedict Stormer. It was very interesting for me because as the Christian monastics were speaking of their experience of love, I was hearing it and everything they described about it as the experience of emptiness. And I just had this kind of feeling, yeah, these are two words for the same thing. Because what does emptiness mean in the Buddhist context? It means emptiness of self, emptiness of self-reference, emptiness of selfishness, emptiness of self-centeredness. So the degree to which we become empty of self-reference, and this is a gradual process of understanding, begin to deepen our realization of selflessness, in that experience of a weakening or diminishing of self-reference there's less and less separation there's less and less sense of self and other and what is love other than non-separation you know we're not making that distinction And, of course, there's, there are ways of cultivating, as we have been doing, you know, the loving-kindness uh, practice using the concept of self and other and beings. So we can use the conventional reality to cultivate good wishes. But on a more fundamental level, the insights of Vipassana, the insight into emptiness, actually manifest as love. Not the love of someone expressing it to someone else, but rather that love, you could say love or compassion, uh, of non separation. And Dilko Kense Rinpoche, one of the great, great Dzogchen masters of the last century, this is a, a bit of a paraphrase. He said, When you realize the selfless, empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. This is, I think this is really quite a profound teaching. Another way of expressing it might be to say that the activity of emptiness, the activity of selflessness is love and compassion you know and so we can begin to see these beautiful qualities as the selfless responsiveness to situations to other people you know so in that sense it's not the feeling of love is not rooted in self it's actually rooted in emptiness So there are some others here but do you have any questions now yeah can you um last week you were talking about a story where um you were reporting to one of your teachers <coughs> and you basically had a, a moment of more natural liberation i'll call it and you were um he basically pointed out you said like 15 to At any rate, can you talk more about your Mental state and what you observe in your processes, and what you were feeling, and what kind of led to that moment. Okay. Do you did you hear that in the back? No. no. Okay. So the uh, maybe last week sometime or recently, I was telling the story of going in for an interview <coughs> uh, with Sayadaw Pandita, uh, and had been kind of in the relationship with him where uh, you know he's a very demanding. Uh, an often stern teacher, although could also be extremely loving. But each time I'd go in, I'd go in with a lot of trepidation and he would just be pointing out all the defilements in my mind, (laughs) you know, in almost every report that I gave. And this one time I went in and I was reporting my experience and he just, you know, he just listed all the defilements that were present in the report. And for some reason at that point, maybe because it seemed so over-the-top, I just started laughing. You know, it just seemed so funny to me in that moment. And what really was happening was, I guess I had been reactive so long to his poking at my mind and so self-judgmental about, you know, everything he had been saying but at that point, in seeing the humor of it, and saying, yeah, look, there's all this stuff going on in the mind, and being able to smile at it, and to laugh at it, and not to personalize it, not, not to take it personally, that's what gave rise to the ease, the lightness of mind. I could, I could just laugh, you know, at, oh yeah, look, look at what's there. And what was so interesting, as soon as I stopped personalizing all of his comments, you know, and taking them as if they were judgments, and certainly judging myself, you know, with it all, as soon as my mind could hold it all lightly, he stopped doing it. You know, and so I really sort of appreciated it as a skillful means, you know, poke, 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 until there's no longer any reactivity. And when the mind stops reacting, then there is just what there is. So a, a kind of, not exactly a corollary, but a, a manifestation of that understanding about our own minds, when we can really learn to see what's there, both the wholesome and the unwholesome, because we all have the mix you know, of, of different mind qualities. It was very, it was It was like a turning point in my practice when I began to be delighted to see the defilements rather than judge myself for them arising. And the delight came at a certain point because I would rather see them than not see them. You know, and so, oh, great, look at that greed. <laughs> oh, conceit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pride or, you know, fear or whatever it is. Oh good, this is a chance to see it, to be with it. Uh, so that's very helpful if you can, you know, if you can bring this quality. to a kind of uh, lightness, a kind of humor, even with things that are difficult. You know, because we all have these difficult mind states. But the realization that they don't belong to anybody. They're all arising out of conditions. They don't define who we are. They're simply states of mind which have been habituated. They arise when the conditions are there. So if we can just see, oh, look at that. I see you. I understand you. I don't have to be identified with you. So, (laughs) every question becomes an hour dharma talk. (laughs) So I was reading uh, one book, uh, teachings by Lady Sayadaw, the great Burmese master. Um, I might have mentioned this in P one. I was reading this. whole list of things which he was describing as wrong view, a basic wrong view. And everything he described was our usual way of being in the world. So it was kind of shocking because he had this whole long list of ways we typically are and he said all of them are wrong view. So what was he saying? What was the list? It was a very simple but long list. I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm excited, I'm bored, I'm fearful, I'm this, I'm that, a whole long list. All wrong view. What's the wrong view? Not the fact that the emotions arise or the mindset arise. The I. I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. And yet this is how we typically are in the world. We we become so identified and we are identified with all of these different emotions that are arising, or mind states, and that's what, that's what ties us in knots. So the problem is not that different mind states are arising. All the work is in freeing ourselves from the wrong view of identifying with them. You know, seeing, yeah, these are rising out of conditions, they're there, they pass away. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't really mean that on a theoretical level, but also e- experientially. So the question was kind of the relationship or understanding the sameness or difference between craving tanha, the second noble truth, which is said to be the cause of suffering, and the other kind of template of understanding the mind of the three unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, delusion, particularly greed. And so is greed the excuse me, same as tanha? Or um, in terms of my understanding, which, uh, with regard to abhidhamma distinctions, uh, my understanding is moderate. <laughs> so there may be further distinctions uh, that I'm not aware of, but for the most part I would see them as synonymous, as just the greed factor of mind and the craving, the one thing. Um, so that's the simple. what about like the craving for non-existence? Would that be the same as aversion? Well, craving and the, the greed and aversion uh, are often two sides of the same thing. You know, there's we don't want this and we want that, and and so in the not wanting aspect, it's aversion and in the the wanting aspect, it's craving. But I think we see in our experience that they're often arising uh, very close to one another. You know, there's we're feeling some pain or discomfort in the body, so there's aversion to the pain which conditions craving for something else. Um. And if you like, you can... Uh, Explore it further with an Abhidhamma expert, (laughs) Phoenix. uh that's a great question about the practice of generosity and how we practice it and how we push the edges and um, there's no one answer to that um, so i've played i've played with that uh, in a way that's been very interesting and helpful for me uh it kind of an approach, it approaches it from another angle. So one of the practices of generosity which, which I've been practicing as best I can, it's not there's more to do, but I, I use it a lot. Uh, it's the practice of if I have the thought to give something, I do it. I don't second guess myself. And it's been very interesting because sometimes it's just a little thing. Sometimes it's been really big things that would be way beyond what I might give under normal, rational thought processes. <laughs> <laughs> and what's been so interesting, so I don't plan it. You know, it, it, it's kind of just that spontaneous response to what aris- what happens to arise in my mind. Uh, and it's some things that are easy to give and some things that, you know, felt like I had a bit of an attachment to. Uh, but what's been so interesting in that practice is I've never regretted it. You know, and when I think back, you know, and this, I've been trying to do this over many years, uh, when I think back, it always is a source of joy. Uh, so i That's just one way. It's not suggesting you necessarily practice in that way, but it's just to say that there's no fixed line, you know, of how much. It's like sometimes we hold back for whatever reason, or maybe we just think it's more appropriate. And at other times, maybe we're super generous, you know, more than might be expected, or more even than we expect of ourselves. And we just play, you know, and see what the effect is. And to me, this is part of the creativity of life. You know, it's not like a fixed model. It's like realizing, yeah, generosity is a beautiful quality. You know, it's beautiful for our own hearts and minds, and it's beautiful for the recipient. Um... You know the, the the karmic results all come from motivation, and so it's really to look at the motivation in the mind. Um, kind of, a, it's an interesting question which I haven't thought about. <laughs> suppose suppose we have the thought to be generous, and then nah. <laughs> I don't think so. So what's the karmic consequence of that? There probably I, I would imagine since, since karma, this karmic result of actions of body, speech and mind, so there probably is some karmic residue from that, you know, if the motivation were in fact a kind of stinginess, which it might not be, you might have held back you know for other reasons. But if it was that, if it was that kind of unwholesome hanging on, there's probably some karmic uh, result of that. But the strength or intensity of karma depends on the intensity and frequency of the mind moments involved. Which is why the karma of action is generally stronger than the the karma of thought. Because thoughts, either wholesome or unwholesome, they may arise in the moment and have their particular karmic uh, valence, but they often just come and go quickly, and so there's not a lot of force behind them. Whereas when we're doing an action, there are many, many mind moments fueled by that mind state. but uh, I would say really enjoy enjoy the play of generosity in all different ways. You know, and just see, 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 what it's like as you as you explore that that energy. And you'll see the whole range of it. As I say, sometimes it might be really big, sometimes just little things, sometimes you'll see the holding back. Uh-huh. This is, I see our lives as a work of art and dharma practice gives us the skill as an artist. You know, we have enough awareness to actually make choices, to see what we're doing. And so we just, we create, we're creating our lives. I think, so the question is so the, kind of the difference between thought and image. Thought as words and image as pictures. And they're both kind of can be objects of mind. Uh, I think it's really simply the use of language. And the way I use those terms, when I use the word thought, I'm referring to words in the mind. And when I use the word image, I'm referring to pictures in the mind. But it may be that some people are using the word thought for both. So it just depends how the words are being used. Uh, in terms of meditation, the relationship to them can be the same. And so with, with thought as words, we could simply note thinking. With images, pictures in the mind, we could simply note seeing. Because that's, it's the inner process. seeing inwardly, Uh, but they're both just arising and passing. Can you share some of your thoughts on reincarnation? (laughs) Some of my thoughts on reincarnation. Well, first to clarify the term, uh, reincarnation is not actually the, the Buddhist term that comes more from the Hindu Tradition because it implies a being who is reincarnated. Right. And in the Buddhist sense, it's not so much as one being goes that a being goes from life to life, but rather it's a process. It's a continuing process uh, of mind and body. You know, arising, passing away, a process of change within this lifetime. But there's nothing which is carried over from moment to moment. It's this moment conditions the arising of the next, conditions the arising of the next. So that's why it's called a process of becoming. Right? And I'll get to rebirth in a moment. But it's kind of like, you know, you plant a seed and the seed germinates and it sprouts and then You know, a plant and then grows more and it becomes a tree and the tree bears fruit. Well, there's nothing in the seed which is carried up, you know, through the trunk of the tree into the fruit. It's not that that seed has stayed the same, rather it's been a process of transformation. The seed, you know, due to the various conditions, is transformed into this and this is transformed into this. So it's a process of continual transformation lawfully. You plant an apple seed, you don't get a mango tree. So there are laws governing the unfolding process. But there is no one element which is carried through. So according to the Buddhist teachings, death consciousness, the, the moment of consciousness at the time of death, conditions the arising of rebirth consciousness, which is uh, the birth in a new existence. It's not that anyone has been carried over, but rather the stream of the continuity of consciousness, uh, that process of continuity continues. This is what's taught. I don't have any direct experience of it, I tend to believe it, realizing that it is a belief, and so I'm uh, waiting to see, (laughs) with some fair amount of interest. (laughs) Just as a little story, one of the people who was in our first teacher training program here at IMS, and perhaps some of you met him, Sri Lankan man named Damaruan. Uh, <clears throat> when he was a boy, when he was just two years old, in Sri Lanka, two and three, he started spontaneously chanting these very elaborate, long Pali chants. No one in his family was chanting them. This, this just came totally out of the blue. You know, and they're very complex, uh, you know, whole suttas in Pali and in, a, in an ancient melody. It wasn't the way they're chanted now. And they were taped, they were recorded and you can can find them online after the retreat. (laughs) (laughs) Since you've locked up all your... (laughs) And it's quite amazing to hear this young, you know, this two or three years old, in that very childish voice. Perfect recitation. As he got older and he had some very deep meditation, he said, and again this is just the report from his experience, that he remembered being a chanting monk in the time of Buddhaghosa, who was one of the great Buddhist commentators in the I think, fifth century, you know, and at that time groups of monks would learn the chants and, and recite them, and that he was, they were coming from memory of that life. So. And maybe there'll be a chance, I have, I have some recordings, maybe one time I'll bring in and just play if, you know, a little bit of it. It's, it's quite fascinating. And, and I don't suggest that this is proof of rebirth, but it certainly raises interesting questions. You know, well, something's going on. Is free will a myth in Buddhist? I've spent endless hours as a college freshman in philosophy (laughs) debating this question, (laughs) as I'm sure many other college freshmen have done, (laughs) of free will or determinism and I think the, the simple, <laughs> the very simplest resolution is not to think about it. <laughs> uh, but if you insist, <laughs> from, and, and I'm going to say this, but uh, this is it. <laughs> this is not the beginning of a long conversation. <laughs> When I really kind of look at what that phrase means, those two words together, I cannot understand what they mean. So even though it's a phrase that is often used, what would it mean that will is free? Whose will? And what's the freedom? Does it mean it's unconditioned by anything? You know. So, so when I really look at, at the phrase, it's very hard to understand actually what it means. And so I've come to the conclusion that it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and that's how I've resolved the question. <laughs> I... I really find it more useful and this, actually this will be one of the questions that was uh, somebody wrote in a note. They were just asking, I've referred to the Abhidhamma, and just asking, well, what, what is the Abhidhamma? You know. So in Buddhism, you know, there are three, what are called the three baskets of teachings, of the suttas or the discourses, the vinaya, the monastic discipline, and the abhidhamma, which is often called the Buddhist psychology, legend has it that the Buddha taught the abhidhamma to his mother who had died uh, I, I can't remember if it was at his birth or shortly after his birth, and it's said that the Buddha spent three, month, three months up in one of the heaven realms, teaching his mother the abhidhamma, came back, uh, gave the the condensed version to Saraputta, who then elaborated it. So I'm sure you will believe that. (laughs) But but regardless of whether that's how it actually happened or not, uh, this Buddhist psychology, which is a very detailed analysis of the elements of the mind and body, not in terms of our conventional reality, you know, where we speak of being and self and other and just our conventional way of understanding ourselves. The Abhidhamma is the analysis of what are called the four more ultimate realities of the physical elements. So, just as an example of the difference between the two levels, conventional level of reality can say, You know, this is a hand, an arm, a leg, a body. But there's no sensation called arm. There's no sensation called leg. We don't actually feel our leg. We don't feel our arm. What we're feeling is tightness, heaviness, pressure, vibration. On that level, the concept, the image of leg and arm disappear. And we're just on the level of the sensations arising and passing, it becomes like an energy field. So that's the more ultimate level. Even though we use conventional language, so it's not that we stop using it, but the Abhidhamma analyzes things in terms of the more ultimate level. So one is the physical elements, one is a very interesting analysis of what are called the mental factors, or all the different mental qualities which arise in the mind like love or compassion or greed or hatred or fear or concentration or mindfulness or ignorance or delusion, all of these factors, both wholesome and unwholesome, are described and defined quite precisely in the Abhidhamma. So it gets very interesting, even a a little bit of understanding of it, because it's a way of understanding our lives from the perspective of selflessness, right? So instead of, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm mindful, I'm (laughs) deluded, we really begin to say, oh, what's happening is just this arising and passing of different mental factors, each manifesting their own uh, qualities. So, I really understand the Buddha's teaching basically as a recipe, a mental factor re- recipe for enlightenment. You know, it's like, yeah, you cultivate this factor, this factor, this factor, this factor. Basically, the seven factors of enlightenment. You cook them for a while at IMS. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no one behind it. It's all an impersonal process. And, you know, the the brilliance of the Buddha was... I and mean, we have, we have a hard time being aware of a couple of breaths, <laughs> you know, and here the Buddha, he was able to see with such clarity, all of these particular qualities, these particular factors of mind, and how they functioned and how they related to one another, you know, so it's amazing, it's an amazing gift to us that we don't have to figure this out because it would be quite difficult. And so he just outlined, he said, yeah, these factors cause suffering. These factors lead to happiness, lead to peace, lead to awakening. Yeah. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> so f- physical, physical elements, mental factors, then the, the, the third reality that the Abhidhamma deals with is consciousness and all the ways consciousness manifests. And the fourth is Nibbana. So these are the four ultimate realities that the Abhidhamma discusses. Um, so you talked about uh, relative reality and sort of this ultimate under-level, which I think you described as like the pixels in a, in, a, in a film during part one. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about how, so moving beyond good and bad, yes, getting to that pixelated ultimate. Um, First, that pixelated reality is not always so sweet. (laughs) Uh, Haven't you ever been to a horror film? (laughs) 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 Of course, that's the picture, that's the story, but really the, the, the pixels of light, the experience of that level we can go, th- and we do in the course of meditation, sometimes we're experiencing it with a lot of joy and happiness, and sometimes in the course of our unfolding understanding, sometimes we're experiencing it uh, as it being quite unpleasant. So just as an example, and this was an image that uh, Ramdas used many, many years ago, but it, it very much uh, uh, illustrates in to some degree the medi- the path of meditative unfolding so he said imagine you're in a plane and you jump out and the first few you know minutes is just free fall and this tremendous exhilaration you know just the exhilaration of free fall and the excitement and shoo, And then, at a certain point, you realize you don't have a parachute. (laughs) So then panic, fear, you know, anxiety, no parachute. So you're falling, 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 no parachute, no parachute. But then at a certain point, you realize there's no ground. And then you just relax into the flow. So in some way, this practice of entering the flow of these more ultimate realities, where we get past the conventional you know, sense of self and body and we're just in the process of things of the elements, mind and body arising and passing very, very quickly there are times when it's exhilarating you know, and it's just tremendous excitement we've never seen it quite like that but then we begin to see there is no there's no security there's no, no place we can hold on to and so we can go through phases where it's very uh, upsetting you know, it's it's totally shaking up our, uh, our system because we realize there's no security any place. So we go through stages of meditation that are difficult. You know, and some traditions might call it the dark night of the soul. Or I think every spiritual tradition describes some of those phases. But then we realize there's no ground, you know, and that's coming to a place of profound equanimity where the practice again gets extremely easeful. And from that place of equanimity, where there's just, the mind is completely impartial, you know, it's just, it's open like space. It's out of that that the mind can then open to that fourth, of the ultimate realities, which is the unconditioned or the unborn. So there's a whole process involved. Um, One of the functions all along the way, and then kind of sealed by these moments, you could call it beginning moments of awakening, is that all along the way the defilements are being weakened and finally uprooted. So that's the process that you're engaged in, even though day-to-day it might not feel like that, that's what's happening. Every moment of mindfulness Is weakening the force of greed and hatred and delusion, wrong view. And that's why when we finally come to a place of some level of realization, that's the sweetness of it. Because the mind has been purified of those defilements, you know, to um, in degrees. People are very different, you know, and to kind of make, I mean, obviously, kind of one can get a sense of what he meant, you know. Oh, the, the, the comment was that she had heard or that Jack Cornfield made the comment that if you haven't cried in meditation, you haven't, your meditation hasn't started, your meditation hasn't started yet. And she wanted to know my comment on that. <laughs> Yeah, I I think the intent behind it is that we do have to get in touch with the full range of our being, you know, and get in touch with our emotions, get in touch with everything that's going on inside of us. Whether that manifests in tears or not, I think, is very individual. And so I wouldn't... I can just see coming, coming here tomorrow morning, oh! <laughs> finally I'm meditating <laughs> let me just read one or two more of these okay so thank um. Please talk a little about remorse versus regret, and about forgiveness. What did the Buddha say about forgiveness? I'm sure everyone has done things they wish they had not. And yet sometimes it feels so challenging to let go of knowing another or yourself was harmed by your own actions. It brings up such a deep sense of loathing. so this is, this is a really important question. Um, Because we've all done things that have been unskillful. You know, I don't, I don't think... I mean, even in, in you know, reading the lives, of the former lives of the Buddha before, before he was awakened, many stories of the unskillful actions he'd done as a bodhisattva. Uh, so we've all, we've all done things that are unskillful. And they come up very vividly often particularly in meditation, you know, because our minds have gotten quiet and we become less defensive, we really start uh, often reliving or remembering some of these unskillful actions that have caused harm to ourselves, harm to others. It's really important to learn how to work with this and to understand this in a skillful way that actually eases the heart rather than creates more suffering and i think it's very useful to make the distinction talked a bit about this in the last half the distinction we could call it i call it this the distinction between guilt and remorse you know you could say regret and remorse but Guilt, I think, captures that sense of self-loathing. You know, more that, that feeling of guilt is so strong and so self-lacerating. Um, and it's very, it was very interesting for me. one In one retreat, the feeling of guilt was coming up very strongly about an action I had done, which I really regretted a lot. It was a harmful action. And the guilt was just, coming very strongly. And I was so caught in it, and I was, there was so much suffering involved in it, that the magnitude of the suffering piqued my interest. It's like, what is going on here? What is the cause of this suffering? I mean, the whole path, the path to the end of suffering. So this is the investigation. Whenever we're caught in situations of suffering, Right there is the place of understanding the Four Noble Truths. You know, it's not theoretical at that time. We're we're in a situation of suffering. So right in the midst of it, instead of drowning in it and simply feeding it, can we bring, bring some investigation to look and understand and see what's the cause of this suffering? Because this is what our whole path is about. And when I did that, you know, when when the, the dukkha was so intense that it demanded that I look at it, I saw so clearly that guilt, that feeling of guilt, was, it was a trick of Mara. Because it was just a huge amount of selfing in a negative way i'm so bad look what i did i'm such a terrible person da da, da 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 and so so much i so much self you know through a negative filter and it was so interesting as soon as i saw hey, this is just a trick of mara this isn't this is an ego trip all this guilt and i did what Uh, I developed a little mudra, which is a hand, you know, a hand position. So my mudra for this was wagging the finger at Mara. (laughs) Because often in the discourses, you know, the Buddha will say, Mara, I see you. You know, so in the guilt of, okay, Mara, I see you. You know, I don't have to buy into you. And when I could see... The guilt as a trick of Mara, as just a reinforcement of self, then I could see the difference between that and a genuine remorse and understanding of the unwholesome action. Yes, it was unwholesome. It did have harmful consequences. I see that, you know, and take responsibility for that. And if there's something to do about it, one does. And if not, One sees it with the understanding, okay, can this seeing be the seed of future restraint? Have we learned from from that? And in that mode or that attitude of mind, there's a much uh, greater sense of tenderness, of compassion for oneself, compassion for the other, and forgiveness. Realizing that we're all in the same boat we've all done unskillful actions it's not that we are such terrible people you know that's that's just that ego trip and so we see what was unskillful we learn from it we have remorse about it you know so there's there's a genuine understanding and we see that it also arose out of conditions at that time the fact that we're seeing it now under different conditions and hopefully with more wisdom. So we're a different person altogether as we're seeing it now. And we bring wisdom to it. And we're able actually to let the guilt go. So this is really important because otherwise, holding on to the guilt and identifying with it, it's just like holding on to a hot burning coal. We're holding on to our suffering. And to see that it's happening just as this ego trip, that's what, that's what helped release it. You know, the guilt... I can't remember whether I used this phrase the other night in the talk. Sokni Rinpoche uh, used a phrase for unwholesome... Uh, mind states, he was talking about a particular kind of fear that had come up in his mind, but it really applies to guilt as well. He said, it's real, but not true. So it, it, it's real in the sense, yes, the guilt is here, but it's not true in the sense, there's no I behind it, you know. And when we see it in that selfless way, then the mind becomes a lot more spacious. This is really helpful. I'd really encourage you, if you get caught up in this particular feeling, uh, you know, as memories come up of, of past unskillful actions, really practice with making the space in the mind, making the space in the heart to see them, to understand that they were unskillful, to learn from them, and to let it go. To understand that, yes, it arose out of conditions, those conditions have changed. Yeah. And it's, this, there's, 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 uh, there's so much here. It's very interesting also to understand how we can transform the karma of those, those unwholesome actions. That if we're holding on to that ego-filled guilt about them, right, creating the sense of self, reinforcing the sense of self, you know, of being this terrible person, we are actually holding on and strengthening the unwholesome karma. To the extent that we can begin to understand the selfless nature of it all, where we can allow our heart to open, to relax, and to see it, you know, with, with more compassion and forgiveness, the karma of that action actually is diminished. And the example given for this, if you put salt in a glass of water, a small amount of salt will make the whole glass of water taste very salty. You put the same amount of salt in a pond, or even much more, you can't taste it at all. When we're holding on, you know, in this ego self way to guilt or other unwholesome mind states if we're reinforcing the identification with them so then that unwholesome state is it's contained within a narrow mind and so the effect of it is much more than if we're seeing it in a very open and spacious mind the very same action seen or held in a really spacious, spacious heart, the effect of that is much less. Oh. So there's, there's a lot of profound understandings of, our, of how our lives unfold when we watch this in ourselves. Um. Okay, so um, I'll just close with one little statement of the Dalai Lama, which uh, (coughs) sort of related both to how we are in the world and how we are with ourselves. And here, you know, we can really practice this in terms of how we are relating to our own experience. He said, whenever possible, be kind, it's always possible. (laughs) You know, and it's just to remember that. Whatever's arising, whenever possible, be kind. It's always possible. So we can be kind to ourselves, be kind to each other. Let's just sit for a couple of moments.